0: And let's turn to the passage that George just read, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. That's our passage today as we continue our series, Vanity Fair, through the book of Ecclesiastes. As I was reading this passage and studying this week, this passage brought to mind one of my favorite movies as a kid. It's a movie called Dead Poets Society with the late, great Robin Williams. Y'all know that movie? It's a movie about high school kids at a boarding school who don't really appreciate great literature or great poetry. And into that void steps Robin Williams, this eccentric teacher who shows them how to appreciate great literature. He nurtures in them an excitement for literature. And so they, they start this club called the Dead Poets Society. And one of the more memorable refrains in that movie is a motto that the boys pick up as they spend time together, as they read poetry together. It's a motto that they repeat. They reiterate to themselves over and over again to motivate themselves. And it's this motto, Carpe Diem. Carpe Diem sees the day. Carpe is the Latin word for seize. Diem is the Latin word for day. So this is the slogan that these boys use to to get them motivated. It's a a good slogan. It's a good battle cry for young men who are living restless and unproductive lives. Seize the day. Go after it. It's a good slogan for us too as Christians. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Because we know, because the Apostle Paul says that the days are evil and time is short. So we see a little bit of carpe diem philosophy in the Bible. And I would say, especially, that's the philosophy that's presented here in Ecclesiastes 9. That's what Solomon's exhortation is to us. Carpe diem. I tell you what that is in Hebrew, and his, but it would hurt your throat to say it. So we'll just stick with Aladdin. Carpe diem. harvesticator, Seize the day. Now, I want to walk you through that. And explain all of what Solomon says in this passage, because it's more than just that. But let me start here. I'm going to give you another Latin expression, to live your life by. Okay? In fact, I'm going to give you four Latin expressions to live your life by this morning. And here's the first, based on verses 1 through 3. And it might surprise you a little bit. Write this down in your notes. Memento mori. Live your life by this Latin expression, Harvest Decatur. Memento mori. Mori. Memento means remember. Mori means death. So basically, remember death. And when I say that, I don't mean like remember the dead. I don't mean that like one of those weird day of the dead festivities that they have in Latin American cultures. Not remember other people's deaths. This is about your impending death. Memento mori. Remember that your death is impending and it's coming for you. Death is imminent for all of us. Here's how Solomon says it. Look at verse 1. But all this I laid to heart. This is something Solomon's been searching for for eight chapters. Examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. You know Solomon's been searching out the deep things of God for eight chapters now, trying to get to conclusions and and he realizes that the righteous and the wise are in the hands of God and their deeds are in the hands of God. This is clear even from the book of Proverbs. It's clear even in Ecclesiastes where he affirms that to fear God is the right thing to do. And there are advantages in this life for the righteous and for the wise. And we should live like that, over against being wicked and foolish. But still at the same time, as you read the first part of verse 1, it's, it's very orthodox, very, very similar to Proverbs But then Solomon goes a different direction at the end of verse 1. And this is is what gives Solomon heartburn at the end of verse 1. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know both are before him. In other words, he believes that God is going to take care of the righteous and the wise because of their deeds, but he can't tell whether God loves or hates, hates them by observing their life. Because bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And so if you try to look at that and observe empirically in the world who God loves and who God hates, you can't make sense of it. You can't make sense of it. He said this already before. Now he's reiterating it. Let me say it this way. The same tornado that destroys the house of an unrighteous person destroys the house of a righteous person, right? Right? Breast cancer kills good women and wicked women both. And heart disease comes to Christians and it comes to non-Christians indiscriminately, right? Are Christians spared the prospect of a miscarriage? No, they're not. Are Christians kept from deep pain in this life? No, they're not. So Solomon is saying here that if you look out on our world, you try to ascertain God's favor by, you know, good or bad, by does he love them or does he, you can't make sense of it based upon their circumstances. And you're bound to make a mistake if you try to assess somebody's status before God by what happens in their life. Whether it is to love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. And then here's the real center for the argument. Look at verse 2. Solomon says, it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. What event is he talking about? Y'all know he's talking about death. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices to him and does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. What same event happens to all of these people? Doesn't matter if you make a sacrifice, don't make a sacrifice. Make an oath, don't make an oath. Good person, bad person. The same event, let me put it crassly. All of us are going to kick the bucket, okay? Good people are going to kick the bucket. Bad people are going to kick the bucket. The grim reaper comes for those who offer sacrifices of worship to God. That was a big thing in the ancient world. And the grim reaper comes for those who don't. He comes for those who swear an oath and those who shun an oath, whether you do it or not. You know, we've said, I've said this before in our series Vanity Fair. I think this bears repeating. The grim reaper is an equal opportunity reaper. And death is the great leveler in our world. Right? And it comes for all of us. Good, bad, evil, not evil, wise, foolish, dispensable, indispensable. You know, you might say, well, these people are indispensable to our world right now. I read a quote this last week from the great French general of World War II, Charles de Gaulle. He said once that the cemeteries of the world are full of indispensable men. (laughs) The cemeteries of the world are full of indispensable men. That's sobering, isn't it? Solomon says in verse 3, this is an evil that is done under the... Solomon is frustrated by this. That, this, this, that we all go to the same place, that we all die, that the same event happens to all of us. This is an evil. He thinks this is unfair, but this is, this is the result of a Genesis 3 world. This is the result of Adam and Eve and their fall. We are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, so we have to experience death because of what they did. And that's just an aspect of life. And also the hearts of children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. You're like, yeah, that's right, Pastor Tony, my, heart, my kids' hearts are full of madness, You should see my house. It's a mad, 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 mad world. And their hearts are full of evil. You know, I keep... That's a pretty interesting statement. The heart of the children of men are full of evil. I keep asking parents at Harvest Decatur, when I see their kids, I I like to ask them, so was this child born without a sin nature? And you should see the looks on your faces when I ask these questions, you know, because... The parents, when I asked, they're like, are you serious, Pastor Tony? Like, do you want to spend a day with this kid? You're going to find out really quick. And I haven't found a kid yet born without a sin nature. Why is that? Because the hearts of the children of men are full of evil. And I want to, let me, let me refine that statement a little bit. When, when Solomon says that when the Bible affirms this, it, it doesn't mean that your kids are only evil all the time. All right. Like Children of the corn or something. Like they're just they got evil all the time. No, it, that's not what original sin means. That's not, that's not what total depravity means, that your kids are evil constantly. They are made in the image of God, and so there is good inside of them. But they also have original sin inside of them. By the way, so do you, grown-up kids. You have those two things that work in you as well. You are Imago Dei, you are made in the image of God, but you also have a sin nature. And, and as we live in this world and see those things unpacked in our world, there's a, there's a madness to it, to, to, to our world. And there's the sin that just is so ever-present all around us. It's a mad, 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 mad world out there. And you might say, that's, that's bad, Pastor Tom. That's really bad. I know it is. It gets worse. Look at the end of verse 3. The hearts of the children of men are full of evil And madness is in their hearts while they live And after that they go to the dead Whew Okay Good people go to the dead Bad people go to the dead In reality there's a mixture of bad and good In all of us And we all die Momentum harvest Harvesticator Momentum mori. Remember your death Face Facts, church, you're gonna die someday. You're gonna die. Unless Christ comes before that, you're gonna die, and, and that awaits all of us. Some people think it's better to just live your life as if that's not gonna happen. Just pretend like death doesn't exist. Just, you know, just, just try to shoo it away as best you can. I don't think that's the best way to experience life. In other words, I think you're better off reckoning with your own mortality and coming to terms with it. And then you can enjoy life like you should. Because think about those people that have like a brush with death. What do they come out of that saying? Boy, I'll never take life for granted again after that. Don't they? You see them and they, they think, man, I had, a, I had a close shave with death. I'm not taking these days for granted. They know how to live because they've reckoned with their own mortality. Remember Ebenezer Scrooge? Remember in A Christmas Carol? Remember at the end of that book when he meets with the ghost of Christmas future and the ghost shows him his future, shows him his grave. And Scrooge is so emotionally taken by that. And he asks this phantom, this ghost, are these the shadows of things that will be? Or the things that may be. In other words, can I turn this around? Can I change my circumstance? Do I, can I still have another chance at life? He was a horrible person before that. He changed his life around after seeing the future. After reckoning with his own death. So, momentum, mori. Harvesticator. That's the first Latin expression. Here's the second Latin expression to live your life by. I've already given this one to you. Carpe diem. Carpe diem. Solomon says there is an evil in all that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all of us. The hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and after that they go to the dead. And you might think to that that Solomon's going to follow this up with a a kind of nihilism, like life is meaningless, life is purposeless, just, you know, doesn't matter what you do. Let's all just give up. Let's all just be depressed because we're all going to die. But that's not what he says. In fact, he he goes a different direction completely. Because he says this, look at verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay, that's not the way that I would encourage people. That's not what I would say. But you know, Solomon's got his own style. So that's how he encourages you. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay, what does that mean? Now, that takes some explaining in our modern-day world. Let me just walk you through this Hebrew idiom because we could misunderstand it because we love dogs in our day, don't we? I told you a few weeks ago about my dog, Tasha. I love Tasha. We, she slept in the same bed with me. You know, some of y'all have dogs that eat better than children. I, I know you just you feed them so good. And we love dogs in our day. But let me just be clear, and you need to know this as you read the Old Testament. That is not how dogs were in the ancient world, okay? That is not how they were in ancient Israel. Dogs were dirty, nasty mongrels in Solomon's day. They were not domesticated. They were disgusting creatures. I mean, they still do disgusting things. I mean, I don't have to paint a picture for you. You know what I'm talking about. It was even worse back then. So a dog, nobody wants to be a dog in the ancient world. Lions, though. Lions, on the other hand. Well, king of the beasts, the great majestic beasts of the animal kingdom. Even in Proverbs 30, verse 30, that that verse calls lion the mightiest among the beasts. And think about the lion, too. That's the royal insignia of the the house of David. David was referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Messiah that came later is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 2. 49 verse 9. So if you asked an ancient Israelite, would you rather be a dog or a lion? They would say, I'd rather be a lion. Six days of the week and twice on Saturday, they would say that. I want to be a lion. So now that you know that, now you can understand verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. We might say it like this in our day. It's better to be a living rat than a dead golden retriever or something like that. You're just thankful to be alive. It's, you're just grateful to be alive. Why? Because a living person has hope. We have hope if we're still alive. Hope of what? Look at verse 5 For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever. They have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Ebenezer Scrooge, he was still alive at the end of that book. There's still a chance. There's still hope for him to repent, to turn things around. It's better to be alive. Now, if I can go New Testament for you for a moment, we need to step outside of the Old Testament and think this through a little bit because Paul says, if I'm alive or if I'm dead... It doesn't really matter because both of those are good for me. Because if I'm alive, then I'll continue to serve the Lord and work for Christ. If I'm dead, I go home to be with the Lord. That's not bad either. Paul would say, writing from prison in the book of Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we can say that too. It's a win-win for the Christian. The only way to lose is to die without Christ. And if you're born again, you're not going to die without Christ. But Solomon's statement here, so let's, let's just think a little more directly on what Solomon is saying. It's more pessimistic. He's saying that the dead know nothing. They have no reward. The memory of them is forgotten. And forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. And that's true to a certain extent. That's true even for us. When we are dead, our time on earth as presently constituted is over. It's over. You get one shot at life. There's no reincarnation. You get one shot at life. And there's no more under the sun after we die. And and for us, that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because we don't have to deal with the problems of this world anymore after we die. Rich Mullins said, it won't break my heart to say goodbye to this world. I, I amen that. And someday we'll kiss sin and death and pain and suffering goodbye forever. But it's a bad thing, death, in the sense that we won't have an opportunity to impact eternity anymore when we're dead. We won't be able to evangelize people anymore. We won't be able to share Christ. That's why we got to make hay while the sun is shining. We got to get to work now while we still have life. That's why every day is precious on this side of eternity. And also here's Solomon's argument. We should enjoy life under the sun while we still can. Why? Because life is short and we're all going to die soon. Look at verse 7. Here's the carpe diem part of this. Solomon says you're going to die, so here, let me give you some advice. Verse 7. Go. Eat your bread with joy. Go to Culver's and have a good time. Harvest Not yet. Okay, we'll get there. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Some of you have been waiting for that verse in the Bible to share (laughs) with your Baptist friends. See, it's right here. Eat your bread and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you did. This is the the closest thing in the Bible to a positive command to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Carpe diem, baby. We're going to die soon. Why? Because God has already approved what you do. Actually, literally, here's what this verse says at the end. For God already delights in your deeds. I think that's a better way to translate the end of verse seven. For God already delights in your deeds. In other words, God gets pleasure when you get pleasure from God's good gifts. That's what that means. When you eat and when you drink and when you enjoy life, God is pleased in that. God shares in that pleasure. You know, I, th- I think some people think of God as like this killjoy up in the sky who loves it when we're miserable. You know, like a great big masochist. Oh, I just love it when these humans I made are miserable. That is not how God is presented in the scripture. God made your taste buds. And he loves it when you enjoy the good gifts that he gives you with those taste buds. That's a good spot for an amen, Harvest Decatur. Come on now. God loves when you enjoy the good gifts that he has given you with the senses that he created for you. God created your eardrums. He created them to enjoy beautiful music and to celebrate that. God created marriage and sex to be enjoyed. God created these these hands that can shape wood and can shape metal and build these amazing structures. And God gets pleasure when we get pleasure in doing that. God created these, these legs that can run outside and these lungs that can breathe in the crisp, cold air when we go for a jug, you know, when you go for a jog, not when I go for a jog. God gave us these eyes that can feast on the great things that He's created. The Grand Canyon. Have you seen the Grand Canyon? Hallelujah! It's beautiful. Have you been to Niagara Falls? Have you felt the power? You just kind of tremble before those waves as they they come over you. Have you seen the Rocky Mountains? Have you seen the Pacific Ocean pounding against the surf? God has given us these, these senses, and he delights when we delight in his creation. Carpe diem, Harvesticator. Enjoy life. And memento mori, yes, but also carpe diem. And there's a sense here, too, and I want to clarify this, that God, God only delights when we delight in his creation in the way that he created them, in the right ways. Is everybody with me? In other words, God delights in our feasting, but not in our gluttony. Keep that in mind this holiday season. God delights in our drinking of wine, but not in our inebriation. God delights in our proper use of sex in the context of marriage, but not in pornography, not in adultery, not in sexual immorality. So what I'm advocating for here is, I'm not advocating for hedonism, I'm I'm advocating for what John Piper would call Christian hedonism, okay? That we enjoy God's gifts and that we we sense that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, including his good gifts. So carpe diem, harvest cater. Enjoy life, but don't forget to fear God and seek those things that please him and enjoy his good gifts the way he created them for his glory. And speaking of those things that always please God, you can write this down as number three in your notes. Here's a third Latin expression to live your life by. Number 3, I'm going to borrow this one from our friends at the Marine Corps. Semper fi. Semper fi. Always faithful. By the way, I my dentist is a Marine and um, I play basketball with him several times a week. And I made the mistake once of calling him a soldier or a retired soldier or something. And He corrected me, Tony, we're not soldiers, we are Marines, okay? So don't make that mistake, I'm not going to make that mistake again, duly noted. And the Marine Corps, he'll tell you, this is their motto, Semper Fi. It's an abbreviation of the longer Semper Fidelis. Semper means always, Fidelis means faithful or loyal, and, and I'm using this motto here to describe how you should live your life under the sun. Yes, there's sin in this Genesis 3 world. Yes, there's pain in this Genesis 3 world. But don't let that be an excuse for you to live like a heathen. Solomon says in verse 8, Let your, let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. People, you know, in that climate, in that dry climate in Israel, people would wear white to stay cool and they would anoint their heads with oil, sometimes good smelling oil, because that was a remedy for for dry skin and, and oil made your hair and your face look fresh and clean instead of dingy and dirty in a place that has a lot of sand and dirt. But there's something more going on here than just improving your appearance with good clothes and good appearance and good oil. White garments are a sign of purity in the Bible. And oil is a symbol of cleanness. So Solomon is advocating here for a kind of moral cleanliness, not just outward cleanness. He says, enjoy life, enjoy God's good gifts, but don't let that lead to a place of sinful self-indulgence. You know, eat food and drink and, and enjoy those things, enjoy food and drink and sex, but don't let that become gluttony, drunkenness and immorality. Look at verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Amen to that. Celebrated 21 years this last week. All the days of your vain life. Okay. <laughs> it's not the most romantic way to say it, but okay. Enjoy life with the wife with whom you, whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. That is not a verse you want to put on an anniversary card and send to your wife on your anniversary, all right? I mean, it's it's positive, but it's a little, I don't know. It's a little sarcastic. You know, thanks for being with me, sweetie, all the days of my vain life. But there is wisdom here. There's wisdom because... Life is short and marriage is temporary. Literally what Solomon says here is look upon the lifespan with your wife whom you love all the days of your vain lifespan. In other words, you're not going to live long. You're not going to be married long. So make the most of it because as Jesus tells us in the New Testament, there's no marriage in eternity. The only marriage that goes on into eternity is the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And marriage is this this momentary institution that God has given us on this side of eternity to enjoy and honor him with and obey the commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. By the way, the word for wife there, everybody see that in verse 9? The word for wife, isha in Hebrew is singular. Everybody with me? Enjoy your wife. And that's a... That's an echo to Genesis 2. Because in Genesis 2, verse 23, God made woman from man. God took the rib of the man, Esh, and he made Isha. man and woman. He made Eve from Adam and brought them together. And I can't help but think with the, you know, the singular use of that word here. And maybe there's a little bit of remorse with Solomon's statement. As he thinks about how he has compromised the loveliness of marriage and the loveliness of monogamy with his multitude of wives and wives that don't even fear God. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Harvest a cater. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. In other words, simplify harvest a cater, be faithful to your wife, be faithful to your job, be faithful to whatever your hand finds to do, work hard, provide for your family. If you get married, stay married, have children, raise them in the fear of the Lord, because there's no marriage and there's no baby making in eternity. Now's your time to do that. Now, I do want to differentiate between what the Hebrews called Sheol And what the New Testament tells us about the new heavens and the new earth. We will have work in the new earth. I think so, because it's a recreation of the Garden Garden of Eden. It's an upgrade from the Garden of Eden. So I, I think we will have work. I think we will have thought and knowledge and wisdom. That's clear from Revelation 21 and 22 and other places. But that's different from what the Hebrews called Sheol. Sheol was the land of the dead. It was a holding place for the dead. Martin Luther called Sheol... the the hidden resting place outside of the present life where the souls depart to its place. So it's a holding cell for souls. And it's not until the New Testament that we really see with greater clarity what God has in store for both believers and unbelievers for eternity. Those things are hinted at in the Old Testament, but they're given greater clarity in the New Testament, just in terms of a hint. Daniel says in Daniel 12, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. In other words, even in the Old Testament, we had had these glimpses of an eternity beyond just Sheol, beyond just this holding place. And Solomon's understanding of eternity here is augmented by what we read in the New Testament. But I think the essence of his argument is still still the same as it is in the New Testament. Semper Fi. Carpe diem and Semper Fi. Be faithful, work hard, and do what God has called you to do all the days of your life before you die. And that leads to number four. Here's a final Latin phrase to live your life by. Memento mori, carpe diem, semper five. And fourthly, ad infinitum. This passage of scripture is really bittersweet. George and I were talking about it before he came and read, and I was like, so are you depressed or are you encouraged by reading this passage? There's a little bit of both. It's bittersweet. And there's some positive, there's some encouraging things in chapter 9, and there are some discouraging statements as well. And I would say that these last two verses are more the latter than the former. Here's what Solomon says in verse 11 again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise nor riches to the intelligent nor favor to those with knowledge but time and chance happen to them all. This is a echo back to what he's already said about the nature of death that it comes to all people regardless of whether you're fast or whether you're strong or whether you're rich or whether you're intelligent you know eric little the the famous sprinter from the 20th century i heard this last week that he would actually sign his autograph and then write ecclesiastes 9 right next to his autograph and that really surprised me you know because why in the world would a world class sprinter like eric little quote this verse again i saw that the sun that under the sun the race is not to the swift why would he like that what you know he's the swift that doesn't speak positively of him. Well, I think he liked this passage, if I could speculate, because it was a reminder to him and to others that eternity waits for no man. It doesn't matter whether you're fast or strong or rich or intelligent. Time and chance happen to them all. Your very life can be asked of you this day. Your number could be up this afternoon. The grim reaper is an equal opportunity reaper. Reaper. And he doesn't discriminate based upon maybe some accolades that you have in your life. You know, that was true of Eric Little. Eric Little was a wonderful person, a beautiful Christian man, an Olympic star. And he died at age 43 in a Japanese internment camp during World War II. 43. I was pretty young. I'm 43. Actually, Little died from an inoperable brain tumor in that internment camp. So even if he had escaped that camp, his time was up. He was indiscriminately marked for death by cancer. Look at verse 12. For man does not know his time. When are you going to die, harvest Decatur? When are y'all going to die? Who's going to die first? Let's not play that game. Do you know? I don't know. Warren Wearsby says that death is not an accident. It's an appointment. A destiny that nobody but God can cancel or change. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. God knows your number. God knows when it happens. I don't know when it's going to happen. You know, I think I've been thinking a lot throughout Ecclesiastes about my mother-in-law and her battle with ALS. And I, I keep you know, going back and forth. Was it a good thing? that she knew she was going to die, that she had two years to say goodbye to her family and kind of slowly degenerate before death. And, and sometimes I think, yeah, that was a good thing. Praise God for that. And then sometimes I think that's a curse. Like, like sometimes I think it would be better just to have a heart attack and die and, and not have to go through that suffering. I don't know. It's like six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. And, and I'm, I, I don't have to know. I don't get to choose. The only thing I know is that man doesn't know when it's his time. And this next few statements, these next few statements here, what Solomon says is kind of crude. So just brace yourself for this. Like fish that are taken in an evil net. And like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Just so you know, birds in the Hebrew culture, birds were thought of as the epitome of gullible, ignorant creatures. You know, and that's reflected even in English. If you want to insult somebody, what do you call them? You call them bird brain, right? And so here's what Solomon is saying. At the end of this passage, he's saying that basically all of us are bird brained. We're all going to die like a bird, and we can't stop it. We can't change it. We can't control it. We are like fish in a net and birds in a snare. And our number will be called. Does that hurt your feelings? I don't like that. I want to be in control. But I'm closer to fish and to birds than I am to God. Everybody depressed? You're dismissed. Let's go to Culver's. <laughs> Just kidding. Speaking of fish, I watched this video a few years ago about this professional surfer named Mick Fanning in South Africa. He was in this, he was like the three time world champion of surfing, which I don't watch a lot, and I didn't watch this live, but I watched it after the fact. And this guy, Mick Fanning, he was going for his fourth world championship in surfing. And as you watch the video, you see him about to mount his board. And then behind him in the video, you see this huge dorsal fin come out of the water. Have you all seen this video? Go show it to your kids later. They'll love it. Right before your beach vacation this summer. And what's terrifying in this video is that this guy is on his board, and he doesn't see this dorsal fin, but you see it on camera. And then all of a sudden, the guy's surfboard gets sucked under the water. And if you watch the video of the live broadcast of this, the, the broadcaster starts cussing live on TV, which you might be tempted to do if you were watching this because not only did the board get sucked underwater, but this guy got sucked underwater. And there were a few terrifying seconds where you didn't see the board, you didn't see him, and just right before they all went under, you saw the body of this huge, great white shark that just sucked everything under the water. And then a few moments later, I mean, this is the stuff of nightmares, right? Isn't it? The wave ebbs, and you see the surfer detached from his surfboard, swimming with everything that he has, into the shore. And you think, that dude just escaped death. I just saw that before my eyes. And, and you just think to yourself, this guy, this guy cheated death. Is life that fragile for us? Is it? Yeah, it is. Is life that precarious in this world? Yes, it is. Even for us mainlanders who don't surf in shark-infested waters. You never know when life is going to be snuffed out from under you. That's what this passage is about, verse 12. You never know when you're going to die, and then that's the end. You die, you're dead, the end, there's nothing after that. Or is there? Is there something beyond death? You know, when Sonia and I, we were in Hawaii last year, we were celebrating our 20th anniversary, and everywhere we went, you know, Sonia would ask these Hawaiians before we went to the beach, are there sharks here? Are there sharks on the beach? And you could just see it in the the eyes of these Hawaiians as we asked this question. They're like, seriously? You know, silly mainlanders? Of course there are sharks out there. But there's like a one in a million chance that you're going to die. So just go swim, all right? And then go back to the mainland and everybody will be happy. So we, so we swam and we survived, okay? <laughs> no sharks. We're still going to die. And I don't know how, I don't know when. I don't know if it's going to be from COVID or from a brain tumor or heart disease. I'm going to die someday. You know what, Harvest Decatur? I am not afraid of death at all. No matter what comes in this life. Because there is an afterlife. And there is an eternity. And I don't even know if Solomon understands that all the way in Ecclesiastes 9. He understands it now. And I'm so glad, I've said this before, that I'm glad that Ecclesiastes is in the Bible, but I'm glad that Ecclesiastes isn't, isn't the only book in the Bible. Because one of the things that the Bible teaches us, some total, is this Latin phrase. I've given it to you already, ad infinitum, to infinity, harvesticator. In the words of the great philosopher, Buzz Lightyear To infinity and beyond. And when I say that ad infinitum, I'm not talking about outer space. I'm not saying or thinking, you know, boldly going where no man has gone before in outer space. When I say ad infinitum, I mean to eternity. We're going to eternity. And we're going to have new bodies, resurrected bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to live for eternity with the Lord and death is not the end for us it is passage onto something better and the Bible speaks even about a new heaven and a new earth and the Garden of Eden 2.0 with the tree of life there and we will eat of its fruit and we will party and we will eat and we will drink and we will be merry forever and ever and ever in the presence of the Lord does the Bible speak about eternity like this? Check this out, 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells forever. Amen. Jesus said in John 14.2, In my Father's house are are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus is off preparing a place for us for eternity. What do you think about that, Harvest Decatur? Revelation 21 says this. Worship team, you guys can come up and prepare for a final song. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Speaking about the new heavens and the new earth. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice. From the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. No more momentum mori. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And here's one more passage, John 10, 28. Jesus said this, I give them my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's Jesus' sheep. That's those who have faith in Christ. Those, that's those who have been born again. Are you born again? You're going to live with him forever? Keep your eyes fixed on eternity. Harvest Decatur ad infinitum to infinity, to eternity.